This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week again for us to talk about what's going on in the intelligence community with our spy show that I host each and every week with our friend, Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing this morning, Mark? I'm doing great. As I was uh, mentioning to you before, I went to the VNN last night, my uh, my favorite watering hole on the planet. And actually, and this is actually, it was quite an honor. They have a, they have a photo there of Equalizer 3, in which there is actually a cameo appearance of a VNN baseball hat, which the station chief in Rome is wearing. And so, I'm doing my part to uh, to spread the love of the VNN around the planet. Yeah, we're, uh, Equalizer Three is the number one movie in, in the world right now, so I'm, I'm pretty excited. Well, we're going to have to change the name of this podcast <laughs> to Tales from the Vienna Inn or something like that, uh, because we mention it so often. Um, we are really fortunate today to have a guest who has a perspective on the intelligence community uh, that is unparalleled. That is Michael Morell, who is the former acting director and deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He's one of the nation's leading national security professionals with extensive experience in intelligence and foreign policy, including his 33-year career with the CIA. Um, Welcome. How are you? I'm fantastic, David. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be here. Well, uh, it's good to it's good to have you here. You have led the way in many things, including good podcasts on the intelligence community. Um, we are uh, let's start at, at at a level we don't normally get to. We're normally on these podcasts we get pretty granular pretty quickly, uh, but you have had such a perspective over the course of your career. You've watched as the mission of the intelligence community has changed and the means of collecting intelligence, the challenges before the community have changed and morphed from the Cold War era into the era in which counterterrorism was a primary mission uh, and now into something new. I, I, I guess now you'd have to say that primary target is is shifting to be China and we're also facing new technological uh, challenges and opportunities associated with everything from AI to ubiquitous sensing. Um, and I, I'm just wondering, based on your experience, how do you feel you, we're doing making the pivot to the challenges of the next five, 10 years? So great question. Um, you know, I, I think you know, the world that we live in um, requires the intelligence community to focus on technology like it's never focused on it before. You know, we always did. This is not something new. You know, we always we always uh, looked at technological developments. We always used the latest and greatest and came up with many of those breakthroughs ourselves. Um, but you know, the world is different today, I think in, in, in a couple of fundamental ways. One is technological change is much faster than ever before. 
Um, number two, it is itself part of the competition with China. Um, and number three, while most of the technological developments, maybe 25, 30 years ago, used to be you know, done by the government, now they're done by the private sector. So we're in a completely different world. Um, the intelligence community, I think, has three responsibilities with regard to technology. Um, one is to collect and assess intelligence on the plans, intentions, and capabilities of our adversaries with regard to technological um, capabilities, right? These key emerging technologies that we all talk about from AI to quantum to synthetic biology, right? All this stuff is important to not only future economic success, but also, you know, success on the battlefield um, and success in the intelligence realm. So um, big responsibility to for the intelligence community to give the president and his or her national security team um, an accurate, timely assessment of where our adversaries are with regard to these key emerging technologies. So that's one. Um, two is our adversaries are using these technologies against us um, as we try to collect intelligence. You know, you mentioned ubiquitous sensing. You know, we call it ubiquitous technical surveillance, which makes it much more difficult, as Mark knows, for for our operations officers to do their job, um, because you know it's it's tough to move around and not be seen, not be detected. Um, so we have to we have to understand what the adversaries how they are using technology against us operationally. And trying to undercut our mission, and we have to mitigate that. It's two, and then three, we have to bring technology in um, to the agencies of the intelligence community and use it against our adversaries. So we have to do to them what they're doing to us. So we have three buckets, right, that we have to pay attention to. And look, I don't have insight into exactly how well we're doing, um, but I think it's challenging. I think it's challenging in all three buckets. Um, and I think it's challenging because um, we need more people who have an understanding of technology. You know, we live in a world in the intelligence community where people, people um, come for entire careers. They stay for entire careers. Um, the attrition rate is really low. Um, and so it's difficult to, you know, bring in new skill sets in large numbers, you know, over a period of time. Um, and so I think we're short S and T talent, technological talent. Um, and then the second thing that's challenging is we're pretty bad. We're pretty bad at, at, um, bringing in technology quickly. Um, you, you know, we have to pay attention to security and counterintelligence for sure. Um, but the people who do that for a living, um, they, they, you know, they're risk averse like everybody else. Um, and their default is no. Because when they say no to bringing something into the building, um, they take no risk. They only take a risk if they say yes. And so that whole process 
of contracting and security and counterintelligence to bring technology in is very painful. CEOs call it the valley of death. So we have some challenges in terms of of skill sets and breaking down traditional ways of doing business in order to be able to be successful at those three buckets that I talked about. So if it's okay, Mark, I'd just like to go back to the first part of the question. Um, uh, uh, don't want to hog the mic here, but um, the, the other thing that I talked about was sort of shifting as principal adversaries go. And yeah. so we, we shifted from Soviet Union to um, uh, terrorist organizations and their sponsors now shifting to uh, PRC, to China, as a principal focus, not to say Russia and terrorist organizations are not a focus, but obviously China's taking a lot more of our bandwidth. It seems to me um, that the culture of each of these places and presumably the culture of these places with regard to how they view intelligence is different. How is China different from the prior principal foci that we've had? Yeah, so my experience, you know, I I started I started in 1980. So I started, you know, um, the latter latter ten years of the Cold War, and when I walked in the door, um, a massive amount of the resources of the Central Intelligence Agency were focused on the Soviet Union. Collection and um, analysis. Um, you know, well over 50%. Um, then the Soviet Union collapses, Cold War is over, um, and resources uh, start being drawn away, but not in large, large numbers because you know, in, in 1991, 1990, 1991, there wasn't any place for them to go. In fact, you know, as you know, David, we, we kind of drifted for a decade wondering, you know, what our purpose was. You know, we were the sole superpower in the world. Um, there wasn't a significant challenge to us for many nation states. You know, there were, there were nuisances here and there, you know, um, Iraq and Iran and North Korea, but, you know, no, no significant challenge to the United States. And, you know, it was a, it was a frustrating time to be an intelligence officer because we didn't know, we didn't know, you know, what the primary adversary was. And then all of a sudden 9-11 happens and, you know, we have our, our reason for existence again. Um, and as Mark knows, a massive shift overnight in resources, um, from all sorts of things to, to terrorism. So we, we took, we took entire teams that might have been focused on just making this up, might have been focused on Indonesia or might have been focused on somewhere in Africa. And, you know, you were working on working on Indonesia one day and you were working on terrorism the next day, entire groups of people. And so by by, I'd say a year, year and a half, two years, probably more than 50 percent of the agency's resources were were focused on Al Qaeda and terrorism. And that shift that I saw. Um, wasn't that difficult. And it wasn't that difficult for two reasons. One is, um, as an operations officer, you know, you're, you're trained, Mark can speak to this, but you're trained to operate in, in, in a lot of different environments, right? You know, Mark spent a lot of his time in, in the Middle East and ended his career on Russia. So, 
Um, and these analysts, right, have skill sets of being analysts. They might not have the expertise, but they have the skill sets of being analysts and knowing how to look at data and draw conclusions. So you can drop an operations officer into a new environment. You can drop an analyst into a new environment and they can be pretty effective. Now, you do want a development of substantive expertise over time, and that will come. Um, but that's not the most important skill set in either in either case. So I think the shift to China, which is happening as we speak, um, I don't think it's as dramatic um, as the shift from from uh, from you know the 1990s into into terrorism. Um, I think it should be. I think it should be. Um, but I think it's going a little slower. But I I think we're pretty good at that. Um, and I think, you know, I worry more about the technology piece than I worry about moving people internally and dollars internally. Interesting. Mark? Yeah, no, I, I agree with certainly that, that last piece. One of the things that uh, just to kind of just uh, overall, what I think that makes Michael and you know, uh, you know, so so great to talk to. There's also this notion, um, not only of a bit, you know, a, a humility, um, but also a desire for us to get better. And so, you know, it's okay if formers come out and, and we're not criticizing the organization. You're saying this is this is how we have to adapt to change. One of the things that that I note, and I think Michael, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and there's many others who have seen this, is that once you actually leave the organization, you go to the private sector, you actually realize how far we may be behind on, on, on technology, on big data. You know, you don't know that when you're inside. And there's also a bit of a culture of arrogance that we can do it better uh, with the government. And perhaps that's, that's certainly not the case. But CIA arrogance? Never. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, let me let me just as a as let me just give you a snapshot where I think we can do things as we make that that shift. You know, I, I remember when I was in one of my, my last job, when I was the op chief over Europe and Eurasia, we were meeting with our partners in, in special operations uh, uh, command. This is actually those who are working in Europe. And, and we're trying to trying to figure out how to make this shift from counterterrorism to, to, in essence, you know, China, Russia, Russia, China, you know, whatever we're saying. And I said, look, we got really good at manhunting. And that's the notion that the U.S. government can find someone that, you know, who is a threat to the United States in the, in the counterterrorism world. And we do that with a variety of means, whether it's signals intelligence, human intelligence, you know, ISR, you know, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, you know, drones. Um, and but with a lot of training of personnel, too. So why can't we take those who have been trained in doing so in Afghanistan and Pakistan, whether it's CIA or, or special operations and say, OK, let's let's plop you in Europe if you have the right kind of cover, right kind of background. But, you know, instead of looking for a kinetic ending, just gain pattern of life on a Chinese intelligence officer in XYZ country in Europe. And then the CIA later on can use that for a recruitment approach because we're good at what? We're good at manhunting. And so that was kind of the the theory. And so I, I think the shift is certainly possible to make, even in some of the things that we, when we were, uh, we did things really well. Um, you know, with all this said, I do though, Michael, want to kind of go back to uh, you know, points in your career, which which I think you made a dramatic contribution to the national security of the United States. I mean, you talk about it in your book, The Great War of Our Time, which, of course, is a, is a, is a saying that we had at CIA. But it's just the, the notion of what happened on 9-11. And, you know, you were the briefer for, you know, President Bush that day. And then, of course, your role in the hunt for, for bin Laden, you were there on that incredible day when bin Laden was was killed. And so can you reflect on that? I mean, everybody, you know, you had a 30 plus year career. There's a lot of big moments. That certainly has got to be one of the biggest. Yeah. Um, 
I'll take 9-11 first. Look, it, 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 um, it is imprinted. Every minute of that day is imprinted, um, on my mind. Um, um, as if it was yesterday, uh, you know, it, 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 to sum up, 9-11 for me was a mixture of the intensity of doing my job um, with the surreal. Um, so a couple of examples of the intensity of doing my job. Um, after we had left, after Air Force One had left Sarasota um, and we didn't know where we were going, we were actually flying around the Gulf of Mexico um, for a while. Um, president asked to see me um, alone in his office, small office on Air Force One. So it was me, the president, and his chief of staff, Andy Card. And the president looked me in the eye and he said, um, Michael, who did this? And I had not, not seen any intelligence. I didn't know that the CIA had already run the manifests of the four flights and um, linked, you know, three three of the passengers to Al-Qaeda. I didn't know that yet. I had not been told. Um, so I told the president, I said, look, I said, Mr. President, um, you know, I haven't seen any intelligence that would take us to a perpetrator. So you're going to get my, you know, you're going to get my best guess. And he said, I understand the caveat now move on, which is kind of a George Bush way of, of interacting with people. Um, so I said, Mr. President, you know, there's two nation states, Iran and Iraq, with the capability to do something like this, but neither of them um, have, you know, neither of them have anything to gain and both of them have everything to lose from doing something like this. I said, I am, I am sure that once we get to the end of the road, we're going to find bin Laden and we're going to find Al Qaeda. And I told him I was so confident that I would bet my children's future on that. And he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, when will we know? And I, you know, there's no answer to that. Um, so you fall back as an analyst on something called context, um, which you learn as an analyst. Um, and so I, I went through the history of terrorist attacks against the United States and how long it took us to know. So I said, East Africa took us three days to tie it to Al Qaeda. The attack on the USS Cole um, off the coast of Yemen, it took us several months to figure out that it was linked back to bin Laden. And I said, the bombing of the, of Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia uh, killed so many U.S. servicemen. It took us a year to link that back to Tehran. Um, so I said, Mr. President, we may know soon. And then again, you know, it may take us some time. And then later, later um, in the day, as we were flying back to Washington, um, George Tenet sent me a single piece of intelligence that was provided to us by a West European service. Um, and it didn't say how they acquired it. It just was the information. So you couldn't, you couldn't judge the credibility of the information, but Tenet wanted me to show it to the president. And what it said was that what happened today, what happened that morning, um, was the first of two waves of attacks against the United States. So here I'm sitting with the president of the United States, whose fundamental job, whose first job, his priority is to protect the American people. And here his intelligence briefer is telling him that another attack might be coming. Um, an example of the surreal, probably the best example is as we were on final approach 
um, back to Andrews that night, the president's military aide, um, a guy who carries the nuclear football. Um, he and I had become friends. He was one of four who rotated. Um, he and I had become friends. Um, and he was looking out the windows on the left side of the aircraft. And he saw me looking at him. The lights inside Air Force One had been dimmed, you know, for landing. Um, and, and he saw me looking at him and he waved me over. So I went over to the window and he said, look out. And I looked out and there was an F-16 on the wingtip. Um, he said, it's an F-16, it's from the DC Air National Guard. There's another one on the other wingtip. And David, Mark, um, that F-16 was so close that you could see the pilot. You could see the pilot's facial features. You could see the pilot looking at us. And in the distance, you could see the still smoldering Pentagon. Um, and then, and then the president's military aide said something to me that really still sends shivers up my spine. It just happened. He said, "Do you know why they're there?" And I, I had no idea. Right? Every civilian aircraft had already been grounded. Um, he said, "They're there. If someone shoots a surface-to-air missile at us on final approach, their job would be to put themselves between that missile and the president of the United States." So then, flash forward, you know, a decade, and it wasn't my my two memories of the Bin Laden raid. My my most um, my sharpest memories of the Bin Laden raid were not the day itself. There were two. Um, my sharpest memories um, were from from the previous August, so August of 2010, when, you know, Mark, we had three times a week meetings with the Counterterrorism Center, right? 4.30. It started at 4.30, um, three times a week. And and oftentimes at the end of those meetings, the head of the counterterrorism would say, Could I could I could I see you guys, you know, privately? Because he had something sensitive to tell us. Um, and usually we would stay in the director's conference room and several people would stay. Right? It just wouldn't be him. Well, on this particular day in August of 2010, he said, um, I need to see you guys alone. Um, and I need to do it in your office. So we went into his, we went into director Panetta's office um, and he brought with him his head of analysis and um, his head of operations. And he said, we have found a guy named Abu Ahmed Al-Kuwaiti. And the director and I had no idea who he was talking about. Um, but he explained who Abu Ahmed Al-Kuwaiti was, you know, somebody who had worked for bin Laden prior to 9-11, somebody that detainees told us, you know, worked for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed after 9-11, um, somebody who detainees told us might be still working for bin Laden. And one, one of those detainees told us might be the kind of person who could even be living with bin Laden. And then and then they described this compound where he lived in Abbottabad. And, you know, we had satellite imagery of it. So you could see this thing. And he pointed out, the, the, the head of the counterterrorism pointed out 12 to 18 foot walls topped with barbed wire. You know, a main, a main building with very few windows. Um, a balcony that had a shield on it. Um, and, you know, walked through all of these weird visible, you know, a, a, a compound that was, that, that was sectioned off. Um, a compound where the only way you could get in was by opening up two gates. You had to open up one gate, drive in, close that gate, open up another gate in order to get in. So all these weird things about the compound. At that meeting, nobody said bin Laden might be there, but the hair on the back of my neck stood up. 
because that's exactly what I was thinking. It's exactly what everybody was thinking. So that that's like a really powerful memory for me. Um, and then another one is the first time we briefed in, in September, a month later, the first time we briefed President Obama. So kind of walked him through the same thing. And I remember very clearly him giving us two orders. Number one, he said, Leon, Michael, find out what the hell is going on inside that compound. And then number, number two, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell the Secretary of State. Don't tell uh, the Secretary of Defense. Don't tell the Attorney General. Don't tell the Director of the FBI. Nobody knows about this but us. This was the best kept secret of my 33-year career. And then flash forward to my last sharpest memory, which is a couple of weeks after um, the, the successful raid. What people don't remember is that, um, what people don't know, I should say, is that the first phone call that Barack Obama made when we were confident that we had killed bin Laden in Abbottabad was to President Bush. And President Obama, knowing that I was President Bush's briefer and I was with him on 9-11, sent me to Dallas two weeks after the raid, so mid-May, to brief President Bush you know, on the whole thing. So I took with me um, the head of analysis from the Counterterrorism Center and the head of operations from JSOC, and we spent two, two and a half hours with the president. He wanted to know everything. He wanted to know every detail about the intelligence story and every detail about the raid. Um, at the end of that two and a half hours, um, he said, you know, Bar uh, uh, Laura and I, were going to go to the movies tonight, but this is better than any movie you could possibly go see. So we're staying home. And he went to his desk and he pulled out two of uh, three of his commander in chief coins and he slapped them in our in our hands, shook our hands. And I looked into his eyes and I saw closure. You know, I saw closure in those eyes on that day for him. Um, so it's kind of, you know, 9-11 and, and then bin Laden and some snippets. You know, the, the hearing this, it's extraordinary for me. First of all, I, I certainly got chills as well from your, from your description. Uh, uh, one of the things you also, you're a hell of a storyteller. So um, uh, this was, this was amazing. But one of the, one of the interesting points, I think, for a lot of us who worked for you, um, and I spent time up there at the, at the you know, the, what we call the CT small group briefing you, is that, you know, we were so busy for so many years, we actually didn't have time, or I don't even think I knew some of these stories. So this was was quite remarkable. It actually, it reminds me too, and and I think that, you know, with these 9-11 anniversaries each year, I mean, I, you know, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of people do forget, but I have friends and colleagues, I know you did too, who who actually, this is all they did. You know, one of my friends who was an operations officer spent 10 years uh, in the hunt for bin Laden. No other assignments, no cushy jobs in Europe, going back and forth, Afghanistan, Pakistan. That is it. Um, and a lot of times, amazingly enough, in our system, that's actually not good for one's career to be so single focused. And and so, you know, what what people put into this um, was their lives. And uh, uh, and then there, there certainly was one other point, too. And um, I remember that you know, when. Uh, when bin Laden was killed, a lot of people did have that thought, okay, now what do we do? You know, we spent a decade hunting bin Laden. So there's, there's a personal side of it uh, uh, as well, but you know, your, your, your comments there were, were absolutely. Let me, uh, let me tie together. Let me tie together David's first question on the new target and the, the terrorism story, because there's a really important point to make. And the really important point to make is that CIA can be incredibly successful 
If it does three things, if it puts the right people on a job, um, number one, number two, if you resource them with money and tools, and number three, if you lead them. And that leadership piece is super important. Um, you know, people ask me, often ask me, what difference did Leon Panetta make to the hunt for bin Laden? Because we never stopped looking for him, right? The story that we had stopped looking and it took Barack Obama to take Leon aside to restart the hunt, that's ridiculous, right? That's politics. Um, we never stopped looking. So what difference did Leon make? And he made a huge difference. Um, David, he got a briefing his first month on the job on the hunt for bin Laden. And it was an hour briefing. Um, and at the end of the briefing, he did something um, that that accelerated the hunt significantly. He said to the guys, okay, thank you very much. You're going to come back every week and give me an update. And having to come before the director every week and explain how you're doing, what you're doing, you never want to come and say nothing happened in the last week. That was the power of the three times a week meetings on counterterrorism. You couldn't walk in there. The counterterrorism center couldn't walk in there and say nothing happened. We didn't do anything. Right. So that leadership, right. Um, with the right people and the right least, the right resources can accomplish anything. So, so what should ha be happening at Langley now is the right people focused on China the right numbers of people focused on China, the right resources dedicated to it, and then that kind of leadership where you're holding people accountable and supporting them, right? The other thing is is is, is getting out of their way. I remember when um, we couldn't figure out why Pakistani nuclear technology was showing up all over the world. You know, it was showing up in Iran, it was showing up in Libya, it was showing up in North Korea, and we couldn't figure out why. And George Tennant, who was then the director, um, created a small group of ops officers. Um, a guy named Jim Lawler was uh, who's written some some great nonfiction books now um, was in charge of this group. And George Tennant told Jim, who was a great operations officer, um, figure out what's going on. Um, you 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 pick your people. Um, you tell me what you need in terms of resources. Um, if you bump up against any CIA regulations that are getting in your way, you come tell me and I'll waive them. Um, and you come tell me how you're doing once a month, right? And within within a year or so, they had figured out that all this technology was coming from AQ Khan, who was you know in in, in the private business of selling nuclear weapons technology. Right? We figured that out um, by doing exactly the model I just talked about. Fantastic story. Um, uh, I, I literally could sit and listen to this forever. Unfortunately, we don't have unlimited time. Uh, and this is the point where we take a break and we say to folks who are not members, you know, you should become a member so you can hear the rest of this podcast. Go to the DSR network, click on membership. It's $5 a month. You get to hear about a, about a third more of every podcast. And some of the questions I know we're about to touch upon are things you want to you wanna hear. So go become a member if you're not one. If you are a member, Stand by, and we're going to pick up the conversation in one moment. 